G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called. There is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the glory of the gospel. And we thank you for this moment now to uh, enter your presence and hear from you. And I pray, Lord God, uh, in thanks for every single person here today that you know by name. And I pray, Lord, that this moment would be used powerfully, prophetically, and personally to enlarge our hearts and uh, increase our vision for you and your kingdom and your glory. So be at work, we pray now, for our good. And your name we pray in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen. Amen. So it's the 13th of June, 1936, and you're standing 
uh, in a shipping yard in Hamburg, Germany. And you see that they're commissioning uh, the latest sea vessel. It's being named after a Nazi activist. Uh, the, the, the deputy leader gives a speech, and by his side is none other than Adolf Hitler himself. The vessel is commissioned with a bottle of champagne, and the large crowd of workers and onlookers give a passionate Nazi salute. Except for one man. Either this guy didn't get the memo, or this was a very clear and public show of defiance. Uh, who is this man? Many believe uh, this man is August Landmesser. 26 years of age, he joined the Nazi party in 1931, hoping that he'd get a job out of it, but he ended up being expelled from the Nazi party in 1935 uh, because he became engaged to a Jewish woman named Irma Eckel. Uh, it's said that a few years later, Irma and August tried to escape Nazi Germany, uh, but were arrested and then sent to a concentration camp. This morning, we continue uh, our journey in the book of Esther, and we're going to consider the courage and cost of defiance. The courage and cost of defiance. Uh, it's been five years since Esther was made queen, and Mordecai, her adoptive father, has just received news that a decree of death uh, is upon his people and is on his head. Mordecai, as you may recall, is a Jewish man working as a public servant, but things took a sharp turn uh, when he got caught in a conflict with Haman. Haman, of course, is the king's right-hand man. He's a man of power and influence. He also is a descendant of the Amalekites, which we learned last week were uh, opponents of God's people Israel. They were notorious for their violent and uh, continued attacks against God's people, all of which to say that Haman isn't just a man with tremendous power and influence. He he is an enemy of God's people, the, the Jews. And so, when everybody's bowing before Haman, when that crowd gathers to show Haman homage, it's Mordecai who stands his ground. It's Mordecai who, who folds his arm. He's the one guy in the crowd who says no. Haman finds out. And of course, he's furious, and he begins to plot this sinister plan to get revenge on Mordecai and the Jews. And so, with a web of lies, he pleads before the king, and the king hands over his signet ring, giving him full authority to do as he pleases. And so, a decree of death is then sent out across Persia, marking a particular day, the 13th day of the 12th month that the people of Persia must destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Without exception, young, old, male, female, everybody is to be put to the sword. And so as we left last week, we saw the kingdom descend into this chaos. There's this wave of fear and terror filling the streets. All the while, we get this closing image of Haman and the king sitting in their royal palace, drinking a drop of champagne and toasting to their power and control. How does Mordecai and his people respond to this decree of death? And what will Esther do when she realizes her adoptive father is now walking on death row? And will she finally come clean, be true to her identity and stand up in her hour of need? If you have a Bible, I'd love you to come with me to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. The narrator says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, 
Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. How does Mordecai respond to the news of this decree of death and destruction? He doesn't pretend that everything is okay. He doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the situation. No, we are told he breaks down with a passionate and public display of distress, of sorrow, and lament. Sackcloth was made of goat's hair, which was not only uh, void of color and shape, it, it irritated the skin. So you put it on not only to display, but to feel the pain. And why does he then go and get ashes and throw that on his body and his face? Because ashes are the remnant of life, the, the sign of death. And it's worth noting the extent of Mordecai's lament. Mordecai doesn't just grieve in his public quarters. He brings his lament to the heart of the city. And it's from the, the private lament that he moves to the public lament that he then makes and brings his lament to the powerful. Look at, look at verse 2. Mordecai went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In many ancient kingdoms, wearing sackcloth anywhere near the king's palace was forbidden. The king didn't want sadness anywhere near his throne. He didn't want news of death and sorrow and lament. Kings took great pride in lifting people's morale and ensuring that everybody was doing well, or at least pretending to be. But for Mordecai, the, the, the time of celebration is over. At great risk to himself, he, he brings his people's despair to the king's attention. And while we don't know whether this news reached the king or how the king responded, we are told that his public display of lament um, inspired other Jewish people to band together and lament with him. Verse 3, note this, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It's true, isn't it, that, that, that suffering and the news of grief and, and death can, can push and pull us into many different responses. Some of us will feel a temptation to ignore what is difficult in our life, to take what is hard and just kind of push it down below and to keep busy, to keep going with what we're doing. Others will, will try and uh, explain away the hard. We, we will be eager to kind of put that silver line on that cloud. Some spiral into a sea of bitterness and blame, pointing the finger. But that's not what we see among God's people in Esther chapter for what we see in Esther chapter 4 is that the people of God unite together and they weep and they fast and there is lament. And what is lament? Well, lament is messy. Lament is uh, gritty. Lament is relationally, emotionally, spiritually exhausting. And yet, isn't it true that sometimes lament is the only language we have? A few months ago, towards the end of last year, I was in Ballarat uh, for the very first public service of our uh, 10th church. And I was there to cheer on uh, Ben Hewitt and uh, be and meet people. Um, so good. Such a great day. And yet, as I'm in the service, 
I feel the Holy Spirit telling me to go and visit a place called Nazareth House. I feel this prompting from the Spirit to go and visit Nazareth House. Now, Nazareth House was a building that was established 19th century in Ballarat, and the Catholic Church run it, uh, and it was once used, no longer now, but once used as an institutional home for young girls. And Nazareth House, many of you know, has loomed large on the stage of my mind because it was where my mother was raised. She was a little girl taken uh, and spent much of her upbringing at Nazareth House. And I discovered this when I was 18 years of age. I didn't know that before then. Spent a lot of time with my mum trying to understand what was later revealed uh, that it was an incredibly toxic uh, abusive, uh, domineering, controlling, uh, horrendous place uh, that impacted my mother's life and indeed the life of many, many other young girls. Despite knowing the story and reading about it and even writing about it, I've never been to the house myself. And so after the service, I get in my car and with so much fear and trepidation, go to Nazareth House, very first time. And, and I remember being struck by the contrast because on one hand, it, it's situated um, overlooking this beautiful lake. And it was, it was sunny this day and, you know, there's, there's trees and birds. And yet here is this building. And, and I walk on in and, and, and I just stood kind of being a little bit haunted by this place. I took a a photo with my uh, iPhone just to kind of capture the moment and um, was just struck by the sorrow of it all. Uh, What had these statues seen? What had these bricks seen? I ended up actually walking into the building itself and I just happened to um, uh, cross paths with a nun who was walking through and uh, I explained to her uh, why I was there and that my mum was there in the, like the late 1950s. And, and, and she was kind of quick to distance herself from, from what had happened and all of that. And I, I was there in, you know, in peace. And, but she was kind enough to, to walk me through. And so she, would point, she pointed out to me where the, the, the kids would sleep. I could see where, you know, the empty corridors, the empty rooms. Even got to go into the chapel where the, the kids gathered for for worship. And as I drove home um, that day, I, I moved through so many emotions, numbness, uh, a sense of helplessness that I, I, I can't change. Everything in me wants to change. I can't change the past. I can't tie this up in a pretty bow. Uh, when I think about the, the, the hurt, the trauma, the generational trauma, Sometimes the, the, the most fitting response to a situation is lament. And, and it's not just an option that you have on the table. Actually, I think the Bible is stronger than that. We are called to lament. We're called to weep with those who weep. To recognize that death, darkness, abuse, bullying, this ain't part of God's intended creation. As Jesus looked over the city, as Jesus encountered darkness and death, he he weeps. I, I think a lot of us, it's true, have grown up being told that tears are a sign of failure, of weakness, particularly the blokes here today. Some of us have been told that men shouldn't cry. Um, the older I get, the more immature that response is to me. Uh, Men are courageous. Men are prepared to be vulnerable. Men are willing to be strong enough to say to someone else in their life, hey, things aren't okay at this point in my life. That takes courage. And I also think this is not just a cultural observation, but actually one for the church. I think 
it's, it, it's, it's fair to say that we've kind of lost the, the art of lament. I was chatting to someone actually last week, a, a woman who was um, talking with me and uh, you know, she started to tear up and then immediately does what, did what we all do and that starts apologizing. We apologize for our tears. And I said, don't, don't, you don't need to apologize. I actually shared with her that I actually went to the movies with my wife just a week or so ago, to, uh, Valentine's Day, to see The Notebook. And I said, midway through the movie, my wife is fine, I'm a mess. <laughs> right? There are things in our life that move us, and they should. And all through the Scriptures, the Bible is wanting you to give voice to the full orchestra of human emotion. I think in the church, sometimes we see sorrow and sadness as spiritual failure. Hey, Mordecai's a dude, right? He's strong. He's compassionate. He's the one guy in the crowd who was prepared to move into, like, and yet he knows how to weep. He knows how to lament. Perhaps you've come today carrying a burden. Perhaps you've come today and, and, and yeah, there, there is a darkness, a cloud, a, or, or, you know, there, there's something, come, it's weighing heavily on you. You've heard news, this is happening. God doesn't want you to ignore that or push that to the side of your faith. We bring this to God. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther's in her royal palace and she hears that Mordecai is in the public square. And she doesn't at this point, know why he's grieving, only that he's outside wearing sackcloth and he's sad and he's distressed. And what is her immediate response? Her immediate response is to send her tailor down and give him a new suit to wear. Why does she do this? Is she trying to comfort Mordecai? Trying to say, don't worry, Mordecai, it's going to be okay. Or is it that she's fearful of what's going to happen to Mordecai? Hey, if the king finds out that you're wearing sackcloth, you know, we need to put some new clothes on you here. The narrator doesn't know. We don't know. What we do know is that it's a misstep because Mordecai doesn't want a change of clothes. He wants a change of situation. He wants the circumstances to change. And so he rejects the clothes and we're told that Esther then orders her servant to go to Mordecai to learn more and find out why he is sad. Just as a side point, if, you're, if you've got a friend in your life, or a family member in your life who is grieved and sad, don't try and cover up the situation. Nothing wrong with sending gifts, nothing wrong, right? But it is important to understand, yeah, why are you distressed? What's going on, Mordecai? And actually, this, this search for understanding is the key that unlocks the truth. So if you cast your eyes to verse 7, you'll see Mordecai sends a message to Esther explaining Haman's plot to kill the Jews. He also hands her the decree so that she can see it for herself. And then in verse 8, he makes this request. He says, Esther, go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. That final phrase is crucial. Mordecai, he's outside the gate, he's visibly upset. Where is Esther? She's in her royal palace, clothed in her royal robes, and her true name and identity is concealed. But Mordecai wants her to see that despite her place in the palace, she is, in fact, a Jew. 
And the Jewish people who are under this decree of death are no ordinary people. They are his people. And Queen Esther, they are your people. All of which raises a tremendously important question for Esther. Will I cling to the identity that I've forged for myself in this world? Will I cling to the name that has been given to me by this foreign kingdom? Or will I reveal my true identity? Will I stand with and for the people of God? And how does Esther respond? Verse 11 Esther sends back a message to Mordecai saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So what does Esther do? Esther steps back in fear. Her immediate response is to step back in fear. And I know that people might be quick to point the finger at Esther at this point for her response. She's the main character in this story and we expect her to recognize the severity of the situation. We expect her to put her own needs to the side. We expect her to put on the red cape and fly in to save the situation. But of course, the truth of the matter is that Esther isn't a superhero that we read in a comic book. You know who Esther is? She's human. She's human. And it's only human to think first about your own life and what you might lose. Is Mordecai aware of what he is asking his girl? Does he know the cost that Esther could play, pay? Look then to verse 13. Mordecai pushes back and he says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. As a Jew, Esther's life is not safe. If and when they find out the truth, she is gone like everybody else. But notice what he says next. He says, if you keep silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Isn't that an intriguing statement? When you look at the circumstances of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 in Esther, there is nothing that suggests the Jews will be saved. Haman has sealed their fate with the king's ring. The day of death has been declared and is in fact by now fast approaching. But Mordecai knows something very important. The Jews living in Susa aren't just Mordecai's people. They aren't just Esther's people. Who are they? They are God's people. God had chosen Israel to be his royal bride. God had chosen Israel to reveal his law, to display his love. God had chosen Israel to bring healing and salvation to the world. Are they outnumbered? Yes. Are they living in a foreign land under a foreign and pagan king? You bet. But guess what? God is faithful. God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his plan. God is faithful to his people. How many of you know that is good news? When Joseph... (laughs) When Joseph was discarded by his brothers and thrown in a pit and the writing was very much on the wall, God was faithful. When Israel were enslaved in Egypt and the Pharaoh was waging war on God's people, God was faithful. 
when Daniel was exiled, tested, tempted, put under trial, God was faithful. You and I, we worship a faithful God. The writing is on the wall for Mordecai. He is as good as dead and buried in this chapter, but he knows the story is not yet over. He knows that when it comes to God, there is no ultimate defeat, no ultimate destruction, whether through us or some other deliverance, God is going to find a way. He always does, and He always will. And so what then does that mean for Esther? Well, she has a choice in this moment. She can continue to hide, conceal, and run in fear, or this could be a moment that she steps up and moves in faith. Look at how Mordecai lovingly, truthfully, passionately lays out this moment of decision for Esther. He says, Esther, who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Is this not one of the most significant and searching questions in the book of Esther? Listen. We heard it shared earlier today. Throughout the book of Esther, there is no mention of God, no allusion to miracles, signs, wonders, angels. But despite the hiddenness of God, Mordecai sees that a bigger story is at play. He sees a grand weaver. He sees a great conductor who is drawing on different instruments to create something significant. Esther Could it be that God was working in the hidden moments of your life? Esther, could it be that the reason you are queen has nothing to do with chance and coincidence and everything to do with God's purpose and plan? Esther, could it be that the reason you are now in this kingdom is for this defining moment to rise up And be part of God's story, to be part of God's plan, to be part of God's deliverance. I love that song um, by Billie Eilish. What was I made for? I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now what I was made for. What was I made for. It's a beautiful song that, of course, speaks to the numbness of loss and heartbreak, but also speaks to our search for meaning and purpose. Mordecai wants Esther to take a moment to recognize that she ain't here by accident. You've been through heartache, you've suffered loss, but there is meaning in your life, there is purpose in your pain, there is significance in your story. You have gifts, you have beauty, you have power, you have influence, you have this royal crown. And what if that is not the closing chapter? What if you were made for more? Then Esther told them, verse 15, to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Uh, This is not only a defining moment in the story, it's the defining moment in Esther's life. Until now, we've watched Esther conceal her identity, uh, sit in silence. She's always the girl who's told what to do, commanded where to go, how she is to act. 
where she is to stand. But here, everything changes. Esther's no longer a little girl enslaved to the expectation of others. She's no longer even tethered to the comfort of the royal palace. She is reborn as a woman of strength, as a woman of courage, as a woman of faith. And so she, as a leader, draws people together. She calls the nation to to fast. And then in verse 16, she makes her resolve. She says, after three days, I'll go to the king. That's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, I'm the father of two young girls, myself. And I can tell you that when I think of their life, I care very little about worldly expectation. My hopes as a father, for all my kids really, is not tethered to what score they get at the end of high school or what job they land or how popular they are or how much money they make. No, at the end of the day, when it comes to my prayer for my girls, it's it's not tethered to what they do, it's who they are. It's why I admire and love the story of Esther. It's why I love this moment in Esther because I see this moment where, where courage And faith breaks on through. Could you imagine if we were to embody that kind of courage, that kind of faith in our life? Right? So many people in the world today are slaves to fear. We fear disappointment, we fear disapproval, we fear failing, we fear not getting, we fear so many things. Fear is like the wall that can so often stand between us and our purpose. I've always loved this great quote by D.L. Moody. He says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Esther cuts the cord of fear and she steps out in faith. I'm going to the king. I'm interceding on behalf of my people. And if I perish, if I lose all this, if I lose my life, if I perish, I perish. How does Esther go? What does the king do when she takes that courageous step and approaches the throne? To find that out, you'll need to come back next week. Before we get there, let's not just close this chapter too quickly. Because once more, we see that God's word speaks powerfully and prophetically to us. And that as we immerse ourselves in God's word, we see that he's, he's drawing something from us. And he's wanting you and me right now to see some life-changing truths. For example, not only do we see God's fingerprint on every page... But do you notice how the story of Esther, and in particular this chapter, points us or gives us a portrait of our Savior? Like I I know that when we're reading the Old Testament, it can be really tempting, can't it, to, to just kind of bring out the moral lessons, the do's and don'ts. You know, uh, be like Mordecai, don't be like Haman. Be like Esther, don't be like Xerxes. And, and, and to be sure, there's a lot we can learn in that regard. But, but before you get to that, you need to recognize that whenever you're in the Old Testament, whenever you're in the Scriptures, whenever you're in the Bible, it primarily exists to, to point us to the good news 
of Jesus Christ himself. And that is why I love the book of Esther so much. Think about it. This entire chapter hinges on whether Esther will hear the cries of her people and intercede for them. Do you know what makes my heart sing when it comes to Jesus? Do you know what gives us a reason to trust and follow Jesus? It's knowing that Jesus heard our cry. Jesus knew. Listen, there was a decree of death over our head. A decree of death over my head, a decree of death over our head. The Bible is very clear. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By nature and choice, we have sinned, we've rebelled. And the Bible is also clear that the wages of sin is death. Now, in the book of Esther, they're talking about a physical destruction. But the Bible, when it says the wages of sin is death, it's, it's, it's heralding to you the very bad news of physical relational, spiritual, eternal death. That is what was over your head. That decree of death. Does Jesus distance himself from our need? Did he run in fear? Did he cling to the comfort of the palace? No. Jesus went all the way in. Jesus enters into a sinful, dark, depraved world. He gives up so much. He empties himself out. He exchanges the glory, uh, the, the crown of glory for a crown of thorns. And on that cross, he dies a death that you and I deserve to die. And in laying down his life for us, Jesus changed the course of history. On the cross, Jesus disarms the evil one. On the cross, Jesus puts away our sin. On the cross, the decree of death that is upon our heads is by faith exchanged and replaced with the decree of life. John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but have eternal life life. Do you believe this? Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you asked Jesus to take the decree of death from your life and to replace it with the decree of life? And here is what is so significant about the gospel. Jesus doesn't just offer us forgiveness and escape from death. Jesus turns to you this day and says, follow me. Follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not just inviting you to put to death the old self. He's now inviting you to uh, to walk into and embrace God's purpose and God's plan. He wants you now to step forward and live a life of boldness, courage, and faith. Esther didn't just feel for her people. She was called to respond and to take action. Now, I do appreciate there's some distance between Esther's story and our story today. I get that. But I want you to consider how you, right now, like her, and not here by accident. I want you to recognize and take hold of the fact that when God made this world, He wanted you in it. That wasn't an accident. No, the Bible says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And He has ordered your steps, determined where you would live. He has given you gifts. He has given you experiences. He's given you opportunities, even in times where you could not see him, even in times when it felt, he felt distant to you. God was there and God is now working. Now, you might look at your life and wonder, how did I get to this point? 
You may look at your future and be unsure of what is coming next. You may look at the forces of injustice that you see in your life, the opposition that you encounter for following Jesus, and you may be tempted to shrink back in fear, to conceal, to hide, to run. But as a Christian who is now united in Jesus, we recognize that our story is ultimately found in His story. What's my purpose? What am I made for? You're not made for this world. You're made by God. You're made for God. As the band prepares to come up, I love, love and find this to be a very helpful text. Apostle Paul says, we, note these words, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Why? To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does that mean? It means that instead of clinging to the safety of the palace, instead of hiding in a worldly identity, we, like Esther, are ready and willing to step forward into God's purpose and plan. And we do that knowing, as we've seen today, that that comes with a great cost. Jesus doesn't promise you an easy road. No, he said to his disciples then, and he says to you right now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his, what? Cross. I've been following Jesus now since I was a teenager and over the years have come to see that there is a very real cost to following Jesus. There's a cost in saying no to sin. There's a cost in saying no to the approval of others. There's a cost in saying no to worldly ambition. There's a cost in pursuing Holiness. There's a cost in stepping out of your comfort zone. There's a cost in, in using what God has given you to push back darkness with light. There's a cost. And that cost will be tested in the decisive and defining moments of life, but also the small, unseen, and hidden moments in life. Is it worth it? Absolutely. The decision to follow Jesus is the best, the best decision we can ever make. Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What is courage going to look like in your life this week? Perhaps there's a call here to come clean with who you are in Christ and just to share with someone in your workplace that you are, in fact, a Christian and that that matters to you and that Jesus is central in your life. Perhaps that's going to be courage for you. Perhaps courage could mean reaching out to that unbelieving friend or family member or work colleague and, and stretching out an opportunity to them and saying, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Maybe that's what courage is going to look like in your life. Maybe courage today looks like staring down sin. You know right now that you're just caught in this habit of yielding to sin, yielding to darkness, giving yourself to things that you know you should not give yourself to. Maybe courage is is drawing on the power and grace of God today and saying enough is enough. I'm not going to stand for that anymore. I'm going to stand for Jesus. Perhaps there's a call here today to, to move away from the apathy and consumerism that has characterized your Christian walk. And courage looks like saying, I'm here to serve. 
I'm not going to be a spectator at church anymore. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to use the gifts that God has given me. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my resource. I'm going to give whatever I can. Perhaps there's a call to step out of your comfort zone. For a very long time in your life, you've been living under the weight of other people's expectations. And today, courage looks like saying, no. Here and now, by God's grace, God's spirit, God's power, I want to walk in God's purpose. We never do that in our own strength. This is something God gives us. Something that God wants to give you today. So I want to pray for us. Um, Why don't we bow our heads? And just as our you know, heads are bowed and eyes closed, I, I'd really love to be specific in this prayer right now. And so if you in your life are sensing a need for, for more faith and courage, you know, perhaps there is one of those situations in your life that requires more courage. Maybe that's coming up in your week or this season ahead. If you really need courage right now, don't, don't hold back. I just... just would you just raise your hand as, a, as an act of faith? Yep. Father, I, and, and I give people time. Father, I thank you for these men and women who are just raising their hand right now. And uh, I don't know their situation, but you do. You know what's before them. You know what they need to do. And I ask, Lord God, that you would fill them with your spirit. Fill them with your love. Give them the courage they need to embrace the cost and to make a stand for you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said,